Hey there, this is Pastor Jason from the Christian Life Church, and we are pleased to bring you the recorded sessions from our recent Heritage 2020 conference with Tim Barton of Wall Builders. These next few sessions are entitled The American Story, What Christianity Did in America. Enjoy. religion or that the people are in any manner compelled to support it. Neither is it Christian in the sense that all its citizens are either in fact or named Christian. On the contrary, all religions have free scope within our borders. Numbers of our people profess other religions and many reject all. Nor is it Christian in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding office or essential to recognition either politically or socially. Nevertheless, we constantly speak of this republic as a Christian nation. In fact, as the leading Christian nation of the world. Now, he's about to give the explanation for why they say we're a Christian nation. America is most justly called a Christian nation because Christianity has so largely shaped and molded it. The reason, he says, that we argue we're a Christian nation is because it's clear that our nation has been shaped and molded by Christianity. The reality for most of us today is that most Americans could not tell how Christianity shaped and molded America. In fact, much of the things that we even enjoy today in America, we enjoy because of Christianity and people don't even know it. So what I'm going to do is for the remainder of the night, I'm just going to give you a listing and explanation of things we do in America. And the only argument you can make for why we do it is because of Christianity. Because nobody else is promoting it. Nobody else was teaching it. This is a teaching of Christianity that we embraced in America. And actually, some of these are pretty notable things. For example, a Republican form of government when we established a Republican form of government in America, it was not the era of republics. It was the era of monarchs. However, when we have settlers coming to America, the pilgrims specifically, before they even left Holland, coming to the New World, their pastor, John Robinson, got on the boat. And he said, you make sure you don't do over in the New World what happens over here in Europe, what they've been doing in England. And he opened up the Geneva Bible and he read to them and taught them out of the Geneva Bible, which is, this is the famous painting. It hangs in the U.S. Capitol where they're gathered around studying the Bible. And in this Bible, he actually taught them from Exodus 18, 21. It says, choose leaders from among you to represent the people. Leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. But he taught them, and actually the same thing is taught in Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 16. And he taught them that when you get there, you need to have elections and you hold leaders accountable to make sure they're godly. And if they're not godly, you get rid of them. When the pilgrims came to America, every single year, they had two elections or an election electing two people. The two people they elected every single year were a governor and a pastor. Because 
They wanted to make sure that the governor could never be the pastor because they didn't want the abuse they'd seen over in England. And they wanted to make sure there was accountability. And so every year they would elect, and, and generally, right, often would be the same person elected every year, but they had elections every year because they wanted accountability. But here's the point. They believed what the Bible taught, and this is what the Reverend John Robinson walked them through. Well, you have Richard Burke, who's the founder of Virginia. He established Virginia, and guess what system of government they had in Virginia, a Republican system of government. You have Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island. When he founds Rhode Island, guess what system of government they have, a Republican form of government. You have the Reverend Thomas Hooker, who founded Connecticut. And actually, Nathaniel Ward wrote the Constitution. Uh, Thomas Hooker was one of the guys also involved in helping do legislation, but two pastors founded Connecticut, and they did a Republican form of government. Then you have William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, right? William Penn, when they form Pennsylvania, they have a Republican form of government. The reason I point this out is one of the big arguments people say today is, well, if Christians were in charge, they just want to establish a theocracy. You know, every time Christians have been in charge in America, but we never established a theocracy because the Bible actually teaches that no, that's okay. What happened is John Robinson is, is one of the first guys to teach this. He said a king was, and actually I'll back up because way before John Robinson, he's the one of the first pastors influencing America, we see this. Back in the days of the Reformation, okay, the birth of the Geneva Bible, all the movements going on, one of the things they said is a king was never God's idea. Now, that's not popular for kings to hear, but it's true scripturally, right? Where the people say, we want a king. And remember, Samuel, the prophet, shows up and he says, you don't want a king. Like, that's a terrible idea. A king will tax you, take your sons, your daughters, your property, your livestock. Like, this is a terrible idea. They said, no, we want a king. Well, John Robinson taught the pilgrims, and he said, well, what form of government did God have before there were kings? Certainly God had leaders, he had prophets and judges, but he said, how, how were they chosen? How, how did they get, because, I mean, certainly God could anoint them, but how did they chose them? And so he went back and showed them from Exodus 18, from Deuteronomy 1, from Deuteronomy 16, how this Republican form of government works, and we see this even going forward. And I mentioned this last night, I think it's worth noting again, if you were not here, it's brand new, but when you look at the Declaration, the guys that did the Declaration, you have people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Wilson, Benjamin Rush, all of them said the ideas for the Declaration largely came from John Locke's work, the two treatises of government. Richard Henry Lee, who's the guy that actually made the motion calling that we separate from Great Britain, he said in his writings, he thinks they basically copied the Declaration from John Locke's work, two treatises of government. The reason that matters is John Locke's work, The Two Treatises of Government, he cites more than 1,500 Bible verses explaining the proper role and operation of government. The founding fathers who established our nation, who helped birth the really Republican form of government, at least constitutionally, right, they're the ones that helped do that. Well, they also were largely influenced by the Bible, and they didn't try to establish theocracy, which you clearly see in the Constitution. Looking at the Constitution, well, where did they get the ideas for the Constitution? Again, I mentioned this last night. There's a group of professors who decided they wanted to go through 15,000 of the founders' representative writings to see where these ideas came from, and they discovered that the number one cited source in those 15,000 writings in the founding era of America, the number one cited source was Charles Montesquieu, the second most cited source, or excuse me, cited individual was William Blackstone, third most cited individual was John Locke. They said John Locke was the most cited during the American Revolution, kind of the birth of the Declaration, but past that, they cited uh, Montesquieu and Blackstone a lot more going to the Constitution, doing the laws, etc., those ideas. Now, those are the top three cited individuals, but it's not a top cited source. These professors identified the number one source in the founders' writings was the Bible. 34% of all their quotes came from the Bible. Again, the reason I point this out, 
What the founding fathers established was a Republican form of government. It was not a theocracy. The reason we have a Republican form of government was because of the influence of Christianity and Christian leaders saying this is the way we should do it because of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you elect people to represent you. There's a lot of people today that are confused even about our system of government. It is the most common today that someone says, we're a democracy. Okay? We've confused the fact that everybody gets to vote to elect leaders as making us a democracy. A true democracy... Every person votes for every issue. We don't vote on every issue. We elect leaders to go vote for us because we have jobs and families. We can't afford to do that. Therefore, when you elect leaders to go vote for you, that's called a republic, not a democracy. And just because everybody gets to vote to choose those leaders doesn't make you democracy. So we've confused that today. But nonetheless, this idea certainly came from the Bible, and historians have largely agreed and made that point very well. Another thing from the Bible that we do in America is the rights of conscience. The rights of conscience are not recognized very well in most of the world. But we have recognized them in America a very long time. Part of the idea for where we recognize the rights of conscience, if you were to read the New Testament and you were to notice every time it uses the word conscience, you would find 30 references to conscience in the New Testament alone. The Bible does teach about conscience, about respecting conscience of others, about not wounding or offending the weaker conscience or the conscience of a weaker brother. There's a lot the Bible says about conscience, and this is where the founding fathers, actually the early settlers coming to America, when they are establishing America, conscience was a big deal. The reason was there was a lot of persecution over in Europe, and the king said, I don't care what you think, I'm the king, you're going to do it my way. And they said, but we don't think that's right. They were being persecuted for their belief system. So when they came to America, they said, we are going to allow people to live according to their conscience. And conscience was something they thought that you, a conviction of what you owed to God. Okay? Which is interesting because according to that definition, an atheist cannot have a conscience. Right? Because it's, it's, it's the conscience is what you owe to God. If you don't believe there's a God, then you don't owe anything to God. Which is also why that in early America, and this was for hundreds of years, atheists were not allowed to testify in courts. Because they said, if you don't believe there's God, then there's no reason you should be compelled to tell the truth because you don't believe you're going to be judged for being a liar. So we can't trust your testimony that you'll be telling the truth. It's really interesting. They said, nope, you have to have a belief in God because you have to have a belief that he's going to have judgment or that he rewards and punishes. And so anyway... They believed in conscience, which is actually where, when you look at the very first laws they began passing in the early colonies, all of the early laws they passed protected the rights of religious conscience. John Quincy Adams explained the transcendent and overruling principle of the first settlers of New England was conscience. One of the things they wanted to protect was their rights of conscience. They wanted to be able to worship God according to the dictates of their own belief system. This is largely what we did and protected in America. This is consistent, in fact, if you look at different areas, even today, we largely still protect conscience in a lot of levels. For example, pacifists and conscientious objectors are not required or forced to fight in wars. Jehovah's Witnesses are not required to say the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools. Jehovah's Witnesses believe you only pledge your allegiance to God, not to anything else. But because that's religious conviction, and actually most kids, like, this is no longer a requirement anymore. Several years ago, U.S. Supreme Court said, you don't have to do that anymore. But even when that was a requirement, Jehovah's Witnesses were not required to. The Amish are not required to complete the standard compulsory 12 years of education. Amish believe you should only go to school through 8th grade. And after that, you should grow up and get a job. 
It's an interesting thought that's actually very similar to early America. I don't know that they're totally wrong in some respects because learning some skill sets and trades and using your hands and learning maturity, that's probably more than what most high school students learn, but we'll keep moving. Muslims and Jewish men are not required to shave their beards in jobs that otherwise require employees to be clean shaven. Seven-day Adventists cannot be penalized for refusing to work their jobs on Saturday, etc. We, to this day, still, in a lot of regards, protect for rights of conscience. Where we have seen some of the biggest changes, one of the areas is in the medical field. It used to be in the medical field that we protected rights of conscience. So if you thought physician-assisted suicide was wrong, or embryonic stem cell research, or euthanasia, or birth control, or RU486 Plan B, or abortion, if you thought those were wrong, you could not be required to do those things if it violated your conscience. All that has changed in America. Now we no longer, and this is just one of the areas that's changed, we no longer protect the rights of religious conscience. That change happened back um, under the last presidential administration where they said, we're not going to respect that anymore. And so to this day, if you work in a public hospital and you believe abortion's wrong, but someone comes in and they want to have an abortion, you can be forced to participate and help that abortion or you can lose your job. Because we no longer respect the rights of religious conscience that you can have a conviction that is right and wrong. But the reason I think we've largely forgotten that is because we forgot what it's based on. The more secular you become, the more you forget about God-given rights, including the right of conscience, which we believe is a biblical idea that God has given us. That One of the things, and just as an example, the Bible talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, you have to work it out between you and God. Right? You have to establish, based on what the Bible says, well, what should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? That is the conviction. We believe the Holy Spirit right, will put conviction on your heart, which the Bible even talks about. That conviction can lead people to salvation. But here's the point. is The Bible is very clear that you have a conviction between you and God, and you're supposed to work and establish and figure that out. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's why we protect it in America for so long. Another idea. Free market approach to religion. We believe in the freedom of religion. Most nations of the world do not fully protect the freedom of religion. To this day in Western Europe, most nations in Western Europe do not protect the freedom of religion. If you were in France today, and you were out and you were witnessing the people on the streets, you could be arrested because they call it proselytization, and that is illegal in France. You are only allowed to talk to people about faith if they come inside the church, not even inside your house, which is mind-boggling, but most nations of the world don't have freedom of religion like we do in America. The reason we have freedom of religion goes back all the way to the very beginning. God always gives people freedom to make a choice. Always. God gives people the freedom of choice. Adam and Eve in the garden. He allowed them to choose, right? I've given you all this fruit. Don't eat of this one. God gave them a choice. Now, we all regret the fact they made a terrible choice. But God gave them a choice, and this is consistent throughout the Bible. If you look at Moses, when Moses is leading the Israelites, Moses tells them, right, Deuteronomy 30, 19, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. This is my favorite kind of multiple choice test where they give you the answer, right? Here's your options, but this is the right answer. This is still, right? You get to choose, but this is the right answer. Joshua, as he's leading the Israelites into the promised land, this is the verse that probably, uh, when I grew up, all of my family, aunts, grandparents, everybody, this is in your house somewhere, right? If you've been a Christian very long, like I think it's like duty, obligation somewhere, you're supposed to have this in your house. Joshua 24, 15, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But 
as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the part that's got to be like in a picture frame or on a pillow or something, right? This is the thing that we have learned as Christians, but the point is, Joshua gave them a choice. God always gives people a choice. God could have made us where we didn't have a choice. We were compelled to follow, but no, God gives us a choice. Always. And this, again, you see this throughout Scripture. One of my favorite examples is in 1 Kings 18. It's Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And when this happens, right, if you guys remember, right, the prophets of Baal are going to go first, and he says, hey, take all the time you want. And right, I mean, you remember how this all unfolds. What Elijah tells the people who are gathered there is how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. He said, you have a choice. Now, he then went on to demonstrate that there's only one true God. Right? So the choice should be obvious, but you still get to make a choice. This is the theme throughout Scripture. So why in America do we believe in a free market approach to religion? Most of the founding fathers, most of the early settlers and Puritans were Christians, were influenced by the Bible. They could have said, this is going to be a Christian nation. And actually, I would largely argue they thought they were making a Christian nation, and they were saying we're a Christian nation. The difference was that in a Christian nation, we do give people the choice. This is not true in most of the world. If you go to the Middle East, if you are in a Muslim-controlled nation, do you have freedom of religion? I mean, yeah, you can choose to be beheaded, right? You have freedom, kind of. The difference is in America, we, we have believed in politically protecting that freedom, where you couldn't be punished for following through with freedom on certain levels, especially the freedom of religion, believing what you want to believe. Another idea, the institutional separation of church and state. Now, this is different than what people say today is that Thomas Jefferson write the letter he wrote and is trying to make America secular. That's not at all what the founding fathers did or what they believed, but they did believe in having two separate institutions. The reason was it's what the Bible teaches in the Bible, right? God created the family. Then God created government, and then God created church in that order. Well, when God has government in the church, Moses is the one that God gives all the law to. That's government. Aaron is the one put in charge of the temple, of the tabernacle. That is the church, or what became the church. So God had different people over different jurisdictions, and they had different jobs, different responsibilities, different duties. However, God was still in charge of both of them. Both of them got their orders from God. None of it was secular, but there were different institutions. A good example of this is in Chronicles 26 with King Uzziah. King Uzziah, the Bible says that God had gifted him with weapons of war. He came back from war one day. He wanted to go to the temple to offer sacrifice. He goes to the temple to offer sacrifice. And while he is there, the priest comes out, sees him, says, Hey, king, what can I do for you? I came to make a sacrifice. And the priest says, Great, give me the animals. I'll make a sacrifice. And Uzziah says, I don't need you to do it. I'm going to do it. Get out of the way. And Uzziah says, King, nobody can go in and make that sacrifice except the priest. Like, this, this is God's command. And the king says, I'm the king. Nobody tells me what to do. So the Bible says King Uzziah goes into the temple to make the sacrifice. And it says that God struck him with leprosy. He turned and fled a leper, ends up dying a leper. But God made very clear, right, King, your job is not to come and control and take over the church. This was a very clear thought from God. This was something that was largely understood. In fact, uh, early historians in America documented that, at up, and this was in the, in the 17 and 1800s, but they documented that up to that time, they saw three main periods of Christianity. 
The first period the first, was the first three centuries, and it was known as the period of purity. Then you have the next 12 centuries, and they called this, right, the Dark Ages, but they also was, they called it the period of apostasy. This is where many people got away from following what the Bible taught, and part of that was because uh, one of the many things that happened, oh, let me back up, is that the, the religious leaders at the time began saying that the Bible is too holy for common man to have, and only the leaders should be able to read and study the Bible. The problem was, when only the leaders know and study the Bible, then if the leader says, hey, God wants you to do this, now, don't read the Bible, just take my word for it. Well, is that really what God wants or not? Well, if you don't know what the Bible says, but the leader who is representing God to you says do it, then you kind of do those kind of things. This is where there was a lot of negative atrocities that happened during the period of apostasy. Um, and this is part of why you had the reformers that stepped up, because they saw a lot of what was going on. Most of these guys were Catholic priests at the time and, or, and monks, and they said, this is totally wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. They were known as dissenters because they dissented with what was happening. So they stood up and said, this is bad. We shouldn't be doing this. We need to change this. And, and, and that became known as the period of Reformation. But under that period, this is when King Henry VIII, well, just one of many examples, um, King Henry VIII, got married, he wanted to have a son, and if you remember, his wife kept giving him daughters. And he got angry and said, okay, this woman's no good, I need a new woman. Now, right, biologically, right, the, the sex of the child is determined by the father, not the mother, so he didn't know biology, but he goes to the Pope and says, Pope, I want a divorce. And the Pope says, we're Catholics, we don't do divorce. And he says, no, you misunderstand. I'm getting a divorce. You need to give me one. He says, we don't do it. And so he said, well, then maybe I don't want to be Catholic anymore. So King Henry VIII breaks away from the Catholic Church and starts his own faith. It, it, be, it was the birth of what became the Anglican Church. But when he birthed a new church, there was one rule he instantly changed. He said, in this church, we grant divorce. So he gave himself a divorce. This became actually fairly common protocol under many kings and even queens where they would change theology and doctrine to fit their thoughts and desires and so you do see this going forward this is a ordinance of the lords and the commons this commons is commonwealth that is the british parliament so to speak and they're passing a law the law they're dealing with was the lord's supper they passed a law about when you could take communion of the eucharist about how you would take it about Right, what time? I mean, just all kinds. It, it, it's worth noting. Like, the government has no business telling any church ever how you have to take communion, but this is what the government was doing at that time. This is another Declaration of Commons or Commonwealth, which was their parliament. And this was against all such persons as shall take upon themselves to preach or expound the scriptures in any church or chapel or any other public place. It was illegal to talk about God or Jesus or the Bible in public unless you were ordained in the Anglican Church in England. If you were caught talking about religion in public, you could be put in prison, and if it was bad enough, you could even be executed. This was a law that was passed from the Parliament dealing with that. The point is, as these kind of laws were being passed, this is what caused people to revolt against it. The Reverend Richard Hooker was the first one who used the phrase separation of church and state. He actually said we should separate the church and the commonwealth. Commonwealth was their government system. When we came to America, even in Jamestown, Jamestown, they would have a governor and they would have a religious leader. But in America, we always made sure we separated the institutions because we did not want to have the same problems in America that we had had in Europe. 
and this is why, again, what the Bible taught. There are different institutions. You have different leaders over different institutions. They have different functions, different jurisdictions. In America, we separate institutions, and it was largely because of the explanation of what the Bible taught and really going back to the Reformers. But you see this clear in their writings. It was their, their influence of faith that caused them to bring institutional separation of church and state. And the next thing is benevolence. If you are not aware, America is the most benevolent nation in the world. America does more to help people around the world for aid, effort, relief, because when you look at the world, one of the things that is common throughout the world every year, there are natural disasters. Every single year, America gives more to people in need than anybody else anywhere in the world. And we're not just generous because we have a lot that we just share from our abundance. We are generous because it's part of the internal characteristic of what we learned growing up. John Adams talked about this. John Adams says, Christian benevolence makes it our indispensable duty to lay ourselves out to serve our fellow creatures to the utmost of our power. Notice what kind of benevolence? It is Christian benevolence. And here's what's significant. If you have grown up and lived in America, even if you are not a Christian, you have learned that you should help people in need even if you're not a Christian, because that's part of what we know to be right. Well, where did we learn that to be right? It's what the Bible teaches. You've been influenced by Christianity just by some of the thoughts we have and some of the issues and areas of life, even if you don't know it's a Christian thought or idea. But let me just walk you back and show you some examples. In the world, there are different kinds of nations of the world. Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, secular, Hindu nations, relatively in that order as far as uh, population or percentage that identifies with some of that faith. Indonesia in the early 2000s had a tsunami that hit Indonesia. Indonesia was devastated. The nation was destroyed by the tsunami. Indonesia was a Muslim nation. When this Muslim nation was destroyed, guess what other nations did not send any help? Muslim nations. In fact, neither did the Hindu or the Buddhist or secular nations. The only nations who sent any help were nations that were largely had been identified as Christian nations. In fact, America was a nation who gave more aid, effort, and relief than every other nation combined. Now, Indonesia is living not close to America. There's lots of nations way closer than we were, but they didn't help. America did. Let me give you a few more examples. The tsunami in Japan, when it hit Japan, America gave more aid, effort, and relief than every other nation combined to help Japan. And this is a consistent theme. One of the reasons I would argue is because of the Good Samaritan. And I will go even further. The Good Samaritan, do you know where you can find that story? Now, it's the Bible. Okay? You don't have to. It's in Luke, but that's fine. You don't, you don't even know that. It's in the Bible. Where can you find this story apart from the Bible? Nowhere. No other faith, no other religion teaches a story of the Good Samaritan like we have in Christianity. This is only taught in the Bible. The reason that matters is because one of the things I mentioned yesterday, Benjamin Franklin, right? The very first hospital opens in Philadelphia, 1751. Inside of that hospital, the seal, the motto that Franklin has inside this hospital, it is from the Good Samaritan where it's a guy riding a donkey, somebody's helping him on the donkey, there's an innkeeper, there's an inn behind it, take care of him and I'll repay thee. But here's why that's even significant. Not only is this shaping the thinking of what Franklin does, this is shaping the thinking of largely every American because even to this day, we have what are called Good Samaritan Laws. A Good Samaritan Law says that if when we leave tonight, right, God forbid, that there's a car wreck in front of us. And, and so let's just, just for example, so I'm, I'm in Texas, I'm driving, I'm in my truck, somebody 
has a wreck, their car flips, they're upside down, I go over to help. I get there and it's, it's, it's a rough scene, right? I get there, I'm on phone 911, hey, send help, get here quick. And I look down and I see this person and their head and neck's kind of turned. And if you know anything, right, you don't move someone if it looks like they have a spinal injury because that can kill them. So I'm, hey, hang tight, right, help's on the way. And as I'm talking, boom, flames bust out on the engine. Now it's like, okay, now we got a decision to make. Because if I leave them there, I don't want them to burn to death, so, I, so I, let me help. So I reach in to try to get them out. Let's say if while I'm trying to get them out, something really bad happens and they don't make it. In America, you cannot be held responsible for something going wrong like that. If, if they die, you can't be held accountable or charges can't be brought against you in that regard because you are trying to be a good Samaritan. You are protected under good Samaritan laws, a good Samaritan statute, that if you were trying to do the best you could, you render the best aid you had based on the knowledge you had available to you, then you cannot be held accountable. That law is in all 50 states of the United States. So you're protected in all 50 states, but here's the question I have. Where did we come up with the idea of the Good Samaritan to even make it into law? It's only taught in the Bible. It's only part of Christianity. See, this is something we don't even recognize how much the Bible has shaped part of even things we deal with on a daily basis or have the opportunity to help or be a part of. Well, also the golden rule. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. This is where even if you're an atheist in America, you learned as a kid, hey, you need to treat other people the way you want to be treated. Everybody's learned this. This is also only taught in Christianity. Nowhere else teaches this, other faiths and religions, the golden rule only in Christianity. And so when you look, why would Americans want to be generous, want to help people in need? Because we grew up learning. Whether you're a Christian or not, you grew up in America learning that we should help other people. When we see the opportunity, we should help people in need. That's a good Samaritan, right? Because if we were in their position, we'd want somebody to help us. It's a golden rule. This is the reason I would argue our nation is an incredibly benevolent nation because we have learned from Christianity. This is not true in other nations and other religions, right? You don't, in, in fact, if you have friends who live in other nations or third world nations, you can ask them. People that beg on the streets, who do they go to the most in those nations? What they will tell you is that they will go to Americans more than anybody else. Do you know why? Because Americans are more likely to give them money than anybody else is. I've traveled a lot of the world. I've seen it firsthand. Okay? This is absolutely true because people know Americans are kind. They're generous. Well, where do we learn that again? These are things that directly have been shaped by the Bible. Common school education. We started public schools in America way back at the time of the early settlers coming to America. But the reason we did that in Europe, there was still widespread literacy. Kids couldn't read or write. We said we want to make sure in America our kids know how to read. 1647. The first education law was passed in America. The education law was known as the Old Deluder Satan Act. It appeared in the code of the 1650s. This was the writing of the culmination of their laws. The Old Deluder Satan Act was given that title because of the first line. And I'm going to show you the, the whole law, or at least the first paragraph of the law. But let me preface with this is before there is any proper spelling. At this point in American history, world history, you just spelled it the way you thought it sounded. Um, there is a founding father in his we have his writings, and so from when he's a kid till when he dies, he spelled his own name six different ways. Okay, so 
I would have done a lot better in school when spelling didn't matter, right? I was a math and science guy. Spelling wasn't my thing. But this is the first education law. Here's what it says. And this, the section is on schools. It says, it being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of Scripture as in former times, and the law goes on. The law starts off with this premise. The devil's main objective is to keep you and I from knowing the Scriptures. They say because we know that's the devil's main objective, we are going to teach our kids how to read so they can read the Bible, and that way the devil won't defeat them in that objective is what the law says. This is where education first started in America. This is the first education law where we said the reason we're having schools is so kids learn to read so they can know what the Bible says. And you can read the rest of that law. You can find it online. But this is the point of education. In 1690, we do the very first education textbook in America. That textbook was known as the New England Primer. We actually have a reprint of the one from the 1777 version back there. The New England Primer would teach kids how to read. And as it would teach them to read, it teaches them the alphabet, it teaches them upper and lowercase letters, it teaches them what syllables are, and it shows them examples of a word with one, two, three, four, five, six syllables. And then as you go through the book, it comes to the very first picture alphabet, kind of an explanation of an alphabet. And the picture alphabet on the left, it shows you the letter. On the right, it shows you kind of an explanation. And in the middle, there's a picture. So the top, it says A. The picture, there's a man, a woman, fruit tree, a snake on the right, and Adam's fall, we send all. Now, that says F, like fend. That's Old English. Okay, Old English, F and S's were very similar. Uh, B, heaven to find the Bible mind. It's a picture of a man. He's got a Bible in his hand. He's looking up to heaven. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. You might not be able to see it, but in the bottom right corner of that picture, there are three wise men. Above them is a stable. There's a star by the stable. There's a cross on the hill. This is profoundly religious for just teaching the alphabet. Except when you remember that the point of education wasn't just to learn to read or write. The point of education was to learn Christianity, to learn the Bible, so that you would know what the Bible says. And this is what they did. In fact, as you keep going, H is one of my favorite examples of this because H says, my book and heart must never part. But it shows a book inside of a heart. Guess what book is inside of that heart? It's the Bible. It's very similar to Psalms 119, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the idea of early education. Well, after you go through learning the alphabet and, and, and there's a few questions and answers along the way, you learn some psalms and some prayers and some hymns, you get to the back of the book. The back of the book, this is, and this is level one. So every kid used this book from 1690 all the way up through the 1930s. This was used in public schools, first grade in America. So first grade, this is where you start. And you had to learn all this content. At the end of the book, you had to memorize Westminster's Shorter Catechism. It's more than 100 questions on faith and theology. This is first grade, okay, level one. So we're talking four, five, six, seven, however old you are when you start school. Let me show you my favorite question in the catechism. Oh, by the way, before there, there's a second alphabet, an alphabet of lessons for youth. It says, A, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heavens of his mother. B, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. C, coming to Christ, all you that labor and heavy laden, he will give you rest. The whole alphabet is Bible verses. So this is an alphabet of lessons, but they're all Bible verses. Now, past this, you have Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this is what I was saying was one of my favorite questions. Question number 36. This is first graders. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Now, I went to Bible college. That's what we talked about in Bible college. That is not what I talked about in first grade. But here's, here's the interesting thought. Why would you ask kids that question? There's only one reason. 
Because you want them to learn the knowledge of the answer. Because right below the question, what is there? There's the answer. So what I want kids to learn is, look, you have been justified through the work of Christ on the cross. You've been adopted in the family of God. You are being sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to learn that question or the answer to that question. That's the only reason we ask that. First graders. This was a first grade textbook all the way through the 1930s in America. Started in 1690. This was used in the founding era. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, Sam Adams, Noah Webster all reprinted this for kids in their schools. I do have a few of these, I think, left on the back table, but a really cool book. Well, we also not only started primary schools or right kind of... Uh, first through eighth grade is what we, what we did in early America. But not only did we start those schools, we also did universities. The very first university was Harvard. It was named after the Reverend John Harvard. There were a group of elders who said, we need a place that we can do greater education for our kids in our own church. Harvard was started as a Bible college. Well, I mentioned named after the Reverend John Harvard. Also, William & Mary was founded by the Reverend John Blair. Princeton was founded by the Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. It's interesting when you look at higher education, how higher education, almost without exception, were all seminaries for the first hundred plus years. And this is where, by 1860, there were 246 colleges in America. There were only 17 that were not Bible school and seminaries by definition. And the other 17, it did not mean they were even secular. You had schools like the University of Pennsylvania, which actually had chaplains teaching in the school. And they actually had chapel, and you were required to go to chapel. It just wasn't a Bible school. Well, going to chapel at normal school doesn't seem very normal, except that's the way it used to be, was chapel was a part of what you would do even at college. Well, this changed largely going forward uh, in 62 and 63. The U.S. Supreme Court said we can't have prayer in schools. We can't have the Bible in schools. That's unconstitutional. And because of that, one of the interesting changes, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I believe what the Bible says is true. But if this is true... If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, if you remove God, if you remove the fear of the Lord, what is going to be impacted? Well, if this is true, knowledge is going to be impacted. So, could we maybe see any statistical correlation to removing God and how that changes things in education? Well, actually, we can. If you go back, this is SAT scores. SAT scores were flatlined for decades. In 1962, when they took God out of schools or said, we no longer need prayer, we no longer need the Bible in schools anymore, it dropped down very, very quickly. Now, it stayed that way for several decades. In 1994, it shot up 100 points because for the first time, they did what was called renorming the test. Renorming the test means we need to update things. We need to change things. And what they said was that our kids are feeling bad because they're not doing as well. And our kids are really good and they're smart and they're bright. So we want to help our kids do better. So we're going to help them do better. So what would they change that helped their kids gain 100 points in one year? What they changed is they said, well, let's give kids points for putting their name and date on the top of the paper. I kid you not. Okay. This was the first time the test was renormed. The problem is we have not improved knowledge or education. We've just given you a higher score. We're giving participation trophies out now. It's not because you've done anything, but this is what happened is knowledge has changed and, and it did not get improved. Well, there's changed lots of other areas too. International testing. 
There are studies every year with kids in elementary, middle school, and high school, and there are comparisons in world standards. And what we see where America is in elementary school, our kids perform above average. Our kids start off really, really strong in world standards, which is not surprising given the the standards we have economically, uh, right, family units, it's not totally surprising where our kids start, but it doesn't stay there. In junior high, our kids have gone from being the top to being the middle, and in high school, they actually are below average. So we started here, we're here, and then we end up here. When this study came out, the American School Board Journal was very shocked by this study, and here was their conclusion. The longer U.S. students stay in school, the less they seem to know. It was a phenomenon they defined as negative learning. Now, that is a problem no matter how you dress it up. This is where we are today, and what we are doing is not working and productive. In fact, if, if anybody in the room has ever been a teacher, or you know teachers, right now what teachers say is the number one problem they deal with is classroom management or classroom discipline. Because kids are unruly, they don't pay attention, they don't want to listen. And that doesn't mean there's not really good teachers doing a really good job, but this is the, this is the battle that teachers largely deal with. Let me back you up. If the very first thing you learned in school was about faith and the Bible and Christianity, there is a God, and right, God is the standard of right. If you learned morals and all you did your first year was learn morals, would that maybe change your behavior the rest of school? Right, that you've learned to now be respectful and pay attention and take notes and right, love people. and but That might make a difference. We don't do that anymore, and we are seeing the very real impact because of that change. But this is something, the reason we started public schools in America was because Christians wanted their kids to learn the Bible. And, and, and this is not even academically argued. This is agreed with. This is the reason school started in America. And when we started school, schools were not a common thing over in Europe. We were doing something nobody else was really doing at the same level the same time we were doing it. And we did it because of Christians who wanted their kids to know the Bible. The last thing I'll point to is a free market economic system. The reason we have, and, and I'm just giving you an example. Okay, There's a lot more I could point to. I'm just giving you an example of things that have been shaped by the Bible. One of the reasons this is significant, looking at the free market economic system, when the pilgrims come to America, the pilgrims do not start off with a free market economic system. The pilgrims started off with really an early form of socialism. They called it the common storehouse system. And they were Christians and they were trying to live biblically. And there were so many people who were sick and, and were having trouble. And so they said, okay, what we need to do is everybody, let's just pull all our resources together. And then we'll just share and share alike as people have need. And they thought they were being kind of like the early church in the book of Acts. The problem was that Governor Bradford identified they, they didn't count on people beginning to fake sickness and fake injury and not working and not even trying and not making an effort. We would call that the depravity of man, right? Socialism never accounts for the depravity of man. That if you're going to reward somebody for not being productive, guess what? They never will be productive. So Governor Bradford realizes we have to change what we do. And so the first thing that he identified from 1 Timothy 5, 8, he says, if a man will not provide for his own family, he's worse than a non-believer. And he said, we've been having people provide for others' family, but not their own. He said, we, we should change this. So he changed to an individual responsibility system where he said, okay, every family, you now are going to have your own field, your own section of land, and you grow your own crops. And, and whatever you can grow, you can, you can keep, you can eat, you can sell, you can trade, but you now, you get to keep 
from the fruit of your own labor. When they went to the system, not only did they have enough that year, they began to have more than enough where they were selling and they were trading. They became the most productive colony per capita in the entire English system in just a couple of years by being able to keep the fruits of their own labor because it drove them, Bradford said, it drove them to work harder than the whips of any master ever could have. Because, right, when, when you get to be productive and enjoy what you've created and what you've done and it's yours and, and your wealth, well, this was something, a lesson also they learned in Jamestown. In Jamestown, they adopted 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If a man would not work, he should not eat. And they said, okay, new plan in Jamestown. From now on, everybody's going to have to work. And Jamestown, if you know the story of Jamestown, Jamestown didn't do real well in a lot of areas. They had what was called the starving time in Jamestown, where they actually turned to cannibalism. I mean, there was a lot of bad things that happened in Jamestown. And part of how they changed it was saying, we need to get away from socialism. So... When people talk about socialism has never worked, it's true. We actually tried it in two colonies in America, and both of them failed miserably. The only reason that it, anybody survived in either one was because they got away from socialism and went toward a free market or individual responsibility system. And this is something that, when you look at the free enterprise system, when we started promoting this more and more in America, we use specific Bible teachings to help shape that idea and, and really those principles. In fact, we, I mentioned these two ideas from the Bible, but also if you look in the parables of Jesus, Jesus taught more parables that dealt with money than any other topic. And in those parables, he says the kingdom of heaven is just like this. A man went on a journey, right? And so whatever the parable is, he's explaining something spiritual by giving something practical that you might can wrap your mind around, saying that's how God's kingdom works. But what he taught in these parables were things like Matthew 25, that labor gets rewarded. And Matthew 20, that skill gets rewarded. And Luke 19, that profit gets rewarded. All of those things were embraced in the free market system. The free market system in America was largely shaped by Christians and Christianity. And we can point to very specific people. Before Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations was ever a thing in America, there were Christians already advocating for these principles, including pastors like John Witherspoon, who signed the Declaration. But founding fathers even identified the influence of Christianity. Benjamin Franklin said, a free market is the means under God of establishing the freedom of our country entire and handing it down complete to posterity. Why would he say the free market is the means under God? He's explaining that this was the principles set forth by God. So when we do it this way, we're doing it under God because those are the principles we learned from the Bible. Thomas Jefferson said something very similar in some regards, but the pillars of our prosperity are the most thriving when left most free to individual enterprise. Notice he said that when we are the most free, we are the most productive. This is one of the reasons that Generally, free market economic systems are more productive and do a lot more. Socialist, communist countries don't generally produce as much as well. And just as an example of a nation that is easy to understand, if you look at the Korean Peninsula, after the Korean War, they were divided along the 38th parallel, North and South Korea. They have the same culture, the same heritage, the same language. North Korea actually had better land, more farmable land than South Korea did. However, North Korea stayed with communism. South Korea went to the free market economic system. South Korea now is one of the top 10 economic producers in the world today. North Korea hasn't done so well. Just to give you an, an example to maybe understand this even better, there's satellite imaging where they actually have an image where there's electricity at night of those two nations. North Korea, there is one dot in North Korea, and that's where the dictator lives. 
In South Korea, all this light is electricity from the major booming cities around there. In North Korea, since the Korean War, more than 3 million people have starved to death. There are stories of people who have escaped who talk about eating sticks or rocks or something, just to have something in their stomach because they couldn't find any food. It has not worked in North Korea, but here's the point. The free market system has been productive where it's tried and has raised more people out of poverty than any other system. And, and people sometimes point to capitalism, talk about the greed of capitalism or the greed of this. Human nature can be revealed in whatever system you use. That's true. You can be corrupt and greedy and lie and steal and cheat in socialism or in capitalism. But beyond whether or not somebody's going to do a good job or bad job, which system has done a better job? And one of the questions, when, when we work with young people in the summer, uh, we work with a lot of college students, and right now, roughly 70% of college kids say they support socialism in some level. So the question I always ask, because I, I think the best way to handle most issues is to ask people questions and make them defend their position, because most positions that are really dumb are not defensible. It's just people have never been asked to defend them, therefore they don't know they're dumb. Okay? So for socialism, I will talk to college kids and say, hey, in your life, do, do you want to have money? And then, like, do you enjoy making choices, like having freedom? Because freedom really is about making choices. So do you, do you enjoy making choices, having freedom? Do you want to make money? Because for me, I would love to have money in my life where my, I can take my wife on vacation. We can buy a nice car if we want to. Like, I would like to have money, and I would like to have freedom to make choices, to go here, go there. Do, do you like those two things? Well, of course. Every college kid says, well, yeah, I, I want to have money, right? I want to have choices. I say, great. Can you name any nation that's ever embraced socialism where it gave people more freedom, and more prosperity. And it's never happened in the history of the world. In fact, the exact opposite happens. You lose freedom and you lose money. Venezuela? Do you know back in 2000, they were considered one of the top wealthiest nations in the world. But they had new leaders who said, we should redistribute wealth and the government should control the means of production. And within 20 years, there are now people starving to death Right? Violence breaking out. I mean, all kinds of terrible things. And obviously, we don't want that. We, man, we pray for them. Right? Maybe we, some of us even, we, we've, we've worked with organizations that have sent help to them. For sure, we want the best for everybody. But the point is, you can change a nation from being successful to destroying it pretty quickly. Venezuela did it in 20 years, embracing this socialistic system. The point is, we understand that freedom actually helps people be more productive. And this is why the founding fathers talked about it. Jefferson said, look, the more free we are, the more productive we're going to be. This is also worth noting in America. If you look back over the last 20 years, many organizations have needed to be bailed out at some point. Okay, whether it's the automotive industry, the insurance industry, right? Different companies have needed to be bailed out. Why it's interesting is all the companies that needed government bailouts are the companies that have the most government regulations over their company and organization. Interesting. So the more the government got involved, the worse they did. Interesting. This is where we see time and time again, sometimes the best thing that can happen is keep the government away from some of this. A little bit like understanding the role we talked about last night. The role of government should be to, to protect the rights of the people not necessarily to get involved and micromanage in different areas and behaviors of life, 
But this is where Franklin again points out that these ideas are ideas under God. And, and, and these are all things that historically is documented. We can show very well and very easily. The reason these ideas were embraced in America, promoted in America, was because of Christians, Christianity, and the Bible. It's very well documented and proven. And I can go even further on the list, but here's the reason I bring this up. Because this is why, just part of the example of why people used to say America obviously is a Christian nation. Because we were shaped and molded by Christianity, today we just don't recognize how much we've been shaped and molded by Christianity. And I'm going to finish with a thought from Teddy Roosevelt. President Roosevelt said the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life, it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. Now, his argument was the Bible has so shaped our nation, if you remove the Bible, you wouldn't recognize America. If you think about that, all of the things I just mentioned are things that we enjoy, and I can document, we've documented other people as well, that these things came as a result of Christians, Christianity, and the Bible. Teddy Roosevelt said, if you removed what the Bible has produced, you would not even recognize America. If you took those things out of America, America would not be America. Right? We'd be some communist country. We'd be some fallen, broken country somewhere else that doesn't work well. And this was his point, is... Christianity is what has shaped this. With that being said, I understand why people would argue, yeah, that's why we're a Christian nation. I understand why presidents for the history of our nation have said America is a Christian nation. I get it. I don't know, based on some of the decisions we make today, that I would argue absolutely America is a Christian nation. But what I would argue, and I would argue this till I have no breath in my body, is that Christianity will benefit any nation that will follow its teachings. Because what I know to be true is the more I do in my own life, the more I do in my marriage, the more I do in my family, the more I do in my company, everywhere I follow what the Bible teaches, it goes better. And this is exactly true in a nation. The better a nation follows the teachings of the Bible, the better that nation will be. It's just that today most people don't recognize that the Bible is what has so largely shaped our nation, and our nation has been so much guided by principles of the Bible. And this is because today, we don't really seem to follow the Bible very much anymore, and it's true on some regards. But the reason it's true is because most Americans don't know what the Bible says, and so they couldn't even follow the Bible if they wanted to. And this is where the challenge comes back to us. One of the things that, and one of the examples from Scripture is, it talks about, how uh, there were leaders of the tribe of Issachar. And, and these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. The idea from the sons of Issachar, and, and, and the tribes of Issachar, one of the things in, in even that chapter, it goes through from this tribe, there were 30,000 warriors. And this tribe had 80,000 warriors. And this tribe had 12,000 warriors. And it goes through and it says Issachar. And from Issachar, there were 200 leaders. That 200 was the smallest number of any number listed in that entire chapter. Leaders are not always going to be the majority. They're not always going to be, right, the general populace. But it says they understood what was happening in culture. They understood the times, and they knew the best course for Israel to take. What our nation needs desperately are people that understand what we're dealing with in culture and know the solutions for how we solve those problems. Well, I will point out the way that you know the solutions is you turn to the Bible. Most of us can identify problems in culture. That's not really the challenge. The challenge is how do we solve those problems? This is where as Christians we have to go back and say, what does the word of God say? Because God gives us guidance for every issue we deal with, every problem in life. God's given us guidance. And this is where the history of America is full of examples. Every time there were issues, every time there were problems, every time there were atrocities, 
there were Christians who knew what the Word of God said and said, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be doing this. And it was always Christians who helped recorrect the course. And this is where I would encourage us. There's no doubt our nation's been shaped by Christianity. There's no doubt that our nation's been shaped by the Bible. It's just a question of how long will our nation continue to be guided by Christian principles. And that answer will only be as long as Christians continue to study the Word of God and inject those principles into culture and society. This is what our nation needs, but it takes us as Christians knowing the Bible to put that back into culture. Thank you guys so much for letting me share. find out more information on this event and other events happening at the Christian Life Church, please visit www.christianlifewaverlyny.com.